Now I, I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Dr. Deborah Saliva. Dr. Saliva is a physician who is a board-certified geriatric in, in geriatric medicine and is an associate professor of medicine at UCLA and the Veterans Administration. She is a national recognized investigator whose award-winning research addresses measuring and improving the quality of long-term care and including the voice of patients and families in their care. Dr. Saliva also serves as the director of the Barham Center for Gerontological Research. The center's mission is to conduct applied research that improves the quality of vulnerable older adults uh, with particular emphasis in those adults that require long-term care special needs. Please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Deborah Saliba. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Zocalo and the California Healthcare Foundation for um, convening tonight's discussion. How we support persons with long-term care needs says a great deal about how we as a society care for some of our most vulnerable members and how we honor our parents and elders. I began my medical career in a busy primary care medical practice, and in that practice, I saw families and patients struggling daily with how to meet the long-term care needs of, of their family members. Um, for many caregivers, ensuring the quality of life of their family members became a demanding and full-time job. As I tried to help them find solutions, one patient at a time, I came to understand that all too often the choices that they faced weren't very good, and that we needed better tools and policies on a more systematic level to support the development of high-quality long-term care. Although our choices have improved somewhat since my early days in medical practice, I continue to see wide variations and inadequacies in the quality, access, and choices for persons with long-term care. Unfortunately, long-term care services remain a fragmented and very poorly coordinated part of the healthcare system. Tonight, we will discuss how to sort through some of those choices and ways to think about the quality of the system. To start our discussions, I just want to provide a little bit of background about long-term care because I'll keep this brief though because I know you want to get to hearing the panelists as soon as possible. But first I want to start by defining what is long-term care. Long-term care is a diverse array of services provided over time to persons who because of their chronic conditions and functional limitations need assistance with their daily activities. These types of activities include what we call the basic activities of daily living. These are things like eating, dressing, bathing, or walking. And the instrumental activities of daily living, which include activities such as being able to shop, manage your own finances, and do light housework. Human assistance can range from providing standby support and supervision to fully performing the activity for the individual. Though family and friends remain the sole caregivers for 70% of the elderly, assisted living and nursing homes step in to offer help in cases too challenging even for the most devoted families. Long-term care services can, provide a, can be provided in a variety of settings, ranging from a person's home to the nursing home, um, and it may be, need, may be needed to be provided throughout the day. Who receives long-term care? 
Persons of any age may receive long-term care. However, the risk of needing long-term care increases with age. Over two-thirds of those who receive long-term care services are over the age of 65. So tonight's discussion will focus primarily on this older group, but we should not forget that there's a very real group of younger persons with long-term care needs. Frailty and cognitive impairment are not an inevitable result of aging. However, the risk of both of these contributors to long-term care need increases with age. Only 6.5% of adults in the age range from 65 to 69 receive long-term care, compared to 27% of persons age 80 to 84, and 80% of those age 90 and older. In addition, older age increases the risk that the long-term care services will be provided in a nursing home. How many older adults receive uh, long-term care? This is a very large proportion of our population. Almost 17% of the 35 million persons over the age of 65 receive long-term care. Interestingly, a review of recent trends has shown that the number of persons that actually receive long-term care has not increased, which was something that we had feared. But what we are seeing is that the complexity and diversity and needs of those who do receive long-term care has become much more e extreme. Debate rages about the future burden of long-term care needs, but suffice it to say that with the expected near doubling of the number of adults in the U.S. from the current level of 35 million to 70 million by the year 2030, the demand for long-term care is expected to continue to be great and is likely to increase. So with that background in hand, I just want to um, introduce tonight's panel to you, and we'll be going into a little bit more detail um, throughout the evening about some of these long-term care services. Gretchen Alkima is the Vice President of Policy and Communications at the SCAN Foundation. Prior to joining the foundation, Dr. Alkima was a 2008-2009 John Hines Health and Aging Policy Fellow and an American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow, serving in the office of Blanche Lincoln. She advised the Senator on aging, health, mental health, and long-term care policy. <coughs> Dr. Alkima has also worked as a social worker in various government and nonprofit agencies to help older adults with chronic illnesses live in their communities of choice. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Bonnie Darwin, um, immediately to, beside me, has more than 30 years of experience in long-term care policy and operations. She started her career as an activities director in a nursing home and later became a nursing home administrator. For the last 20 years, she has worked in the state capitol as a lobbyist for the California Hospital Association and as the chief consultant for the Assembly Committee on Aging and Long-Term Care. Currently, she is the executive director of the California Culture Change Coalition, an organization that promotes person-centered care in California's nursing homes. Gary Passmore has spent the last seven years working with the Congress of California Seniors. CCS is a statewide advocacy group that has worked on behalf of California seniors for over 30 years. It lobbies the state legislature and state officials to push issues that help seniors live safe and productive lives in their communities. Before moving to California, Mr. Passmore served as the budget director or assistant budget director in several large Midwestern states and was the chief of staff to the governor of Missouri. He also served as a public policy and political campaign consultant um, for several years. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Um, Gretchen, I, I just sort of 
briefly um, in, in um, the, uh, the background and overview describe some of the types of long-term care services, but I was wondering if you could go into just a little bit more detail um, about what types of services um, might be available to families facing long-term care needs. Sure. Well, as you said so eloquently that there is clearly a, a wide range of services. I like to think of them as, as a continuum of care that includes both medical services as well as bridging them with supportive services or social services, um, as well as a variety of housing services that can support elders who are in need of, of uh, long-term care support. So uh, we can think about things as nursing homes, and oftentimes when folks think of the word long-term care, that's almost the first immediate thought that comes to mind is that long-term care equals nursing home. And nursing homes are certainly part of the continuum, but um, there are many folks who uh, would much prefer to, to receive services and supports in the community, and so that there's an extended array of things uh, such as home care, home health care for folks who needed uh, support after a hospitalization and having a, a particular acute need. Uh, there are transportation services, meal services such as home delivered meals or congregate meals. Um, there's also a, a bro broad array of folks who uh, support seniors and their families with understanding what their needs are, such as care management services, people who do an assessment and, and find out what exactly are those needs that, that elders have to pair them up with the right services at that time. Um, there are also things like legal services to help people uh, get their estate in order and make decisions about uh, what they would like at care at various points in, in the care delivery. Um, there are financial services for people who want to get their finances in order as they think about them throughout their life course. Um, there are also things such as you know, having a caregiver come particularly into the home and do chores. There are things like the area agencies on aging, which have information about these, the array of services that are available. And then there's the whole housing realm, such as uh, has been discussed a little bit, assisted living types of arrangements, uh, residential care facilities, which might be smaller, say six-bed homes uh, that, uh, that provide care to individuals who are no longer able to live in their own environment. Um, so there's really a wide array. So when we say this thing called long-term care or the continuum of care, it's really, really broad. And, and the most important thing is to help older people and their families really determine what exactly are the individual and specific needs that someone has so then the services can be paired up and collected together to make the most appropriate uh, kind of service package for an individual. And it really isn't a monolith term, even though we say it sometimes in the policy world, oh, long-term care. There's so many different parts and nuances in that. And um, I would say, you know, we're, we're sitting in an, an audience who is in uh, the Los Angeles County area, and there are a number of services that are available, both things, most of which are paid for, frankly, by uh, individuals and their families, a, a little bit that might be paid through public systems, but very, very small. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that we are an area here that's service-rich. There's a lot of different kinds of services you can purchase in this area, but there's still a fair amount of fragmentation um, that it's hard to know what services people need, how to put them together in a sensible way, and, and how, frankly, to pay for them, because oftentimes services can be quite costly out of pocket. So that's kind of a, a broad brush stroke about the, the variety of things that we, we have available. As well as caregiver support, I wanted to make sure to say that, you know, it's uh, making sure that the caregiver, um, whoever that may be, is supported in that process can really help uh, take those extra steps to help keep a family member either in their home environment or in, in the least restrictive environment possible. So Gretchen mentioned least restrictive environment possible. Gary, do you want to pick up on that? 
Well, I think it's important for folks to understand, and by the way, I'm delighted to see so many people at or under 40 in this room. Uh, I, I work and advocate for seniors, and sometimes I feel like I'm speaking to a, a crowd that gets smaller every day that goes by, even though we're seeing a, a real tidal wave of seniors. But long-term care is an issue that's intergenerational, and I'm really glad to have especially some of you younger faces in the crowd. Gretchen talked about uh, long-term care, maybe not being a system, but a, as a continuum of care, but it can be a daunting continuum for the average individual who uh, probably hasn't given a lot of thought to long-term care. The sad truth is many long-term care decisions get made when, when you have a loved one in the hospital and you discover that that family member is not going home to be self-sufficient. And you may have to make some big, big decisions uh, within a very compressed period of time and without very much good information. And even though there's all sorts of information available, including the great new website from the California Healthcare Foundation, those, that, those sources of information are really daunting and they're not individualized. And so one of the messages I'd like to leave with all of you is that you spend a little bit of time learning about the options that are available uh, and those that are most appropriate for what you think the person who's seeking care might need. The first big choice is whether or not an individual is comfortable in an institutional setting, maybe a quasi-institutional setting that we policy wonks call assisted living or residential care facilities where it's a group setting but a smaller group setting and much more self-directed, or whether the individual really wants to continue as much independence as they can and we're seeing that that's becoming the trend, that that's what most people want. They want to be self-sufficient, live independently, live in the communities with which they're familiar uh, as long as it's feasible. And that's a real challenge uh, for many of us because choice is available to people who have a lot of money, I'll be honest about it, or to those people who have virtually no money. Uh, because there are public programs as inadequate as they are, there are still programs available. There's this big vast middle that sees not only the confusion and the complexity of living arrangements and trying to bring together the services that they need, but they need to figure out a way to pay for them, and we don't do a very good job at that. I don't think I answered your question, but... That's okay. okay. That's fine. That was a very important point that you made. Bonnie, um, talking a little bit more, I think, I don't know how much the audience knows about the different types of funding that is available for long-term care. So talk about the difference, perhaps, about between post-acute care services um, funded by Medicare and um, the Medi-Cal uh, types of programs. Oh, you would give me that complex question. <laughs> um, that the most of long-term care is is paid for out of pocket. Most people, and and Gary alluded to, um, if you already have Medicaid, which in our state, of course, we refer to as Medi-Cal, then there there really are an array of services that are um, available to you. And if you are fairly wealthy, probably you have have something covered or insurance that covers it. But most of the, the my, my parents are 92 and 95, and there wasn't even a long-term care policy that they could have bought, you know, at a, a time when it was affordable, when they were in their 40s. 
So the majority of people, you know, that are in their 80s and 90s now have not been able to think ahead, and so we're, they're paying for it out of pocket. And certainly that cost is a huge consideration. The, one of the things that I think you run into, and I, and I really began to see this with my own parents and experience it in a different way, is that that, that generation of people who are now in their 80s and 90s, one of the things that's really critical to them is a legacy. And they're, they're often really reluctant to spend money on themselves. Um, I'm seeing a nodding head. They really are. When, when it came time to make some decisions about, from, for my own mom, I kept saying, Mom, you've got the money, you can spend it. And, and she, she, she was so reluctant, and, I, and she said, well, but I'm, the money's for you and my brother, you and Glenn. And I, I said, Mom, why don't you buy us peace of mind now? Um, so, so the, the, the vast majority of, lo, of long-term care spending is, is going to be out of the older person's pocket. Research studies have actually shown that um, it's much more likely to see income transfer from the older generation to the younger than from the younger to the older generation. So Bonnie's um, family experience is very consistent with what um, national studies um, have shown as well um, in the aging population. You were going to say something else? Even for people who do have resources, that... I mean, I just threw out a, a whole swath of different kinds of things that could be available. That, that there's a whole process of really understanding what is it that one actually needs, and how do you go ahead? How do you go forth to purchase those services, and how do you monitor the quality of those services, and how do you engage this whole array of services and supports? So I agree that there's that financial aspect, which certainly takes away one of the question marks, but there's so many other question marks underneath that, and. It's it's, you know, when, when one comes to that presentation point of coming to an end of a hospital stay and having the couple-hour decision-making about what are we going to do next to help mom, that it's not as easy as, as kind of one-stop shopping right now of having an understanding of what exactly our mom's needs, what exactly needs to happen upon her coming home. You know, does there need to be, you know, we can't do a renovation of the bathroom in the next 24 hours because she has a tub where she has to step over into. So how do we manage that basic need of, of bathing in the next 24, 48, 72 hours? How do we make sure that she can get into the house because there's three steps and her legs are weak from that hospitalization? So, I mean, even those really specific basic technical items that could be resolved, say, with writing a check, it's then that gets to the question of how do I go about accessing those services? Who knows what are the things that, that we need to address and deal with right now, how to go about purchasing them, and then, frankly, what's the quality? So really getting back to that access and, and quality point that you put forward. So, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, mixing those two ideas together, I think, is really important because, you know, I think about oftentimes that caregivers are, are kind of the accidental tourists sometimes in this journey, and certainly our older adults, you know, no one really comes forth to this idea of planning fully and, and uh, in a complete way of being a caregiver. And uh, even of those of us who I think think about it a lot, that there still can be events that happen in the lives of our loved ones that, that take us by surprise and, and having to be really creative, even for people who know the system inside and out. In fact, I would say events that take us by surprise are more often the norm than, mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. actually being able to plan it, it, comprehensively and, you know, in advance. I think events that take us by surprise are pretty much the norm. Yeah.
And unfortunately, the system's not flexible in responding to those uh, types of events. Yes, I, I want to pick up on what Gretchen just talked about there, because we've talked about the financial barriers and the access. We've talked about the complexity of the system, but there's also an issue of quality. And it's one that sometimes we don't appreciate until we're in a nightmare for a loved one, candidly. And we have very different kinds of oversight of the quality of care that's provided in this array of long-term care. And most of us have heard or read of stories of nursing home uh, lack of quality. But in fact, nursing homes are probably the most regulated, monitored, uh, standardized part of the long-term care system. Uh, most nursing homes are inspected regularly, and in spite of all of the horror stories that we may hear, those inspections, when they occur, are generally pretty thorough, um, and the nursing homes are required to do follow-up and make corrections. Um, and the very fact that there is a process of inspecting based on certain standards that are in place and have been established means there's a certain minimal level of quality I think you can count on. That's not always true with a home caregiver that you may select on word of mouth. It's not even always true on a publicly provided home caregiver. Um, you might be surprised to know that in the state of California, there are no state standards for training home care workers. Um, some counties have some training programs. Some counties provide none, none whatsoever. And at the rate of pay that the typical home care worker gets, it's a minimum wage job. You can't expect somebody with a master's degree in gerontology to come take care of grandma. There are real issues of quality, and sometimes it's, you don't discover the problems or the issues with quality until you're already involved in providing long-term care or receiving long-term care. And sometimes that's too late, to be honest. Sometimes people can get themselves into a problem where there is lack of quality, lack of oversight. The state of California, for instance, is in a terrible financial mess. That's not news to anybody here, and if it is, you should leave because you're not paying attention. But Gretchen, well, I don't mean to take it light, lightly. I, that's something I, I, I struggle with. That's one of my jobs in Sacramento is, is trying to advocate for better funding and maintaining the programs that we have in place, and we're losing. But Gretchen talked about residential care facilities, what some of you may know as board and care facilities. It's an old name, you know. Uh, an individual who uh, opens their home and has say, a three- or four-bedroom house and brings in six people or so to take care of. Do you know that we now have a, an inspection regimen that this administration, this governor and his staff have signed off on of looking into those homes once every seven years? That's how frequently they're being monitored. Seven years is the lifespan of a, of a frail elderly senior. And we're going to one day in this state, as have, has happened in other states, have a terrible house fire, uh, and there will be people killed, and there will be fingers pointed, and there will be a scandal, and there will be questions asked. And yet, right now, our policymakers are engaged in literally abandoning about 170,000 seniors who live in residential care facilities in this state because of the budget crisis that we have. So quality is an issue that should, that should be of a concern to every one of you. 
uh, as you approach the issues of long-term care for your family members. So, so Bonnie, as we're looking at a, at a long-term care program and we're trying to understand quality, what are the kinds of things that you think we should be trying to take a look at? You know, dealing with this, um, and as I was listening to Gary, dealing with it, with this issue as a professional and then now dealing with it personally with my own parents makes a difference. And one of the things I'm beginning to see is that um, quality, I, quality of care is what the, has been the preoccupation of the regulators in, in government. I have come to think that quality of life is equally as important. And quality of life really is, is not something you can standardize, and it's very much defined by the individual person. And, and so coming up with options that work for my parents, um, and in both cases it turned out to be very different options, but the more I really tried to impose my professional view, especially with my mother, the less it worked, I have to tell you. Um, and, um, and finally, and in fact, I even sought some counseling and my, my therapist said, what are you going to do, go in with six guns blazing, you know? But that's kind of what I did want to do because I knew what was best for her. Um, we did... We did come to a, a solution and the, and the quality of life issues, I think. And quality of life issues to me are when that older person really defines that they're happy with the situation as, and as happy as they could be. Mostly people would prefer to stay in their own homes, prefer to keep their driver's licenses, prefer to do everything as they did in the past. So for in for many instances that's just not no longer possible but given within what is possible um, it's that that older person is is as happy as can be mm -hmm. so those things are equally as important as the standards that we set and I think I, I'll give a little plug to the the California Healthcare Foundation's new website because I think it it's really designed to help people sort of go through all of the options and um, but I think in the in the end um, it, when the older person really feels that they've made it, they've made a choice. They're comfortable with their choice, and especially if that choice is near people. I know in a, in our family that the my brother lives about forty minutes from my father, and I kept one of the things I really tried to convince my father was that, you know, make it easy for your children to visit you. And it took a long time for that kind of concept to, to get through, I have to say. But, but, you know, regularly seeing your family members is an important element of quality. And I can tell you also if, that nursing homes, we all do. We just pay more attention when we know family members are going to be visiting regularly. So as important as it is to have, you know, state inspectors, especially for those people who have no one, when a family visits frequently and is involved with the older person, nothing beats that in terms of quality. And the issue that you raised about autonomy versus safety. Do you want to talk about that a little more? Oh gosh. Yeah, my mom was my mom was falling and falling frequently and um, and and so we really were trying to to deal with what that meant. You know, there were different opinions within our family. Um, in fact, um, if you don't know, um, there is an entire movement within the country 
to not ever restrain older people and ha to have restraint-free facilities, to have as minimal amounts of restraints. Just 10 years ago, or maybe, maybe 15, but yeah, 15, we thought that the best thing to do was to tie people up. And now, because we didn't want them to fall. Well, now we not only know that that's, that is, is um, bad for a lot of reasons. One is that people become more agitated. Another reason is that, in fact, more falls occur, or more serious injury and even death occur when you do restrain somebody because oftentimes they, they will, tr for instance, try to get out of bed and then they fall to the floor if they're in a nursing home. They also stop using those large muscles and so then they'll get general body weakness. So there are a lot of things that you just really have to balance out and you're the physician, Each maybe I should ask you this question, how you make decisions for individual um, people because you really have to, you have to balance out the, the person's safety and well-being with their desire for autonomy, and that isn't always easy. We were having a debate, a debate earlier about nutrition, and I was kind of saying to Gary, what, you're going to change an 80-year-old's eating habits? You know, it, it seems to me that, you know, 80-year-olds ought to be able to eat whatever they want. Then I found out that Gary was a diabetic, and I said, oh, no wonder nutrition is so critical because for, for you it's life or death. So uh, you know you really have to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. You have to think it through. And it's a process with any individual as well as on a case-by-case -case basis to work through that those issues of autonomy um, and safety. Um, and sometimes it's a decision if, the, if they understand the risk and the, uh, of what they're agreeing to, to let them go ahead and make those choices. They may not be the choices we would make for them, um, but how to make those possible. In the area of nutrition, it's, it's a classic example. We take people, we put them in an institution. When I tell you to go on a particular diet in my, in my office, you go home and you do what you choose to do. And oftentimes that's not following that diet. When we put you in the nursing home, the only food that you have access to is the food that I've ordered for you. So if I order um, a no-salt, 1,800-calorie ADA diet for you, and you haven't eaten that in your entire life, it can be a very constricting um, experience and really um, bad influence in really terms of quality of life. Let's think for a minute here. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about requires a certain understanding of the older adult. Um, and the Institute of Medicine's report looking at the workforce issues facing us as we have an increasing aging population one of the things that they placed special emphasis on was the need for um, more geriatrics knowledge within the entire interdisciplinary team. Uh, Gretchen, can you talk a little bit more about that? It is so critical. Um, and I think one of the, the fundamental things is certainly not only understanding the physiological changes that older adults experience, um, the potential cognitive changes that older adults can experience, but more importantly, how do you communicate with people who are experiencing changes in their health that may come in in rapid cycles or maybe um, maintaining for a period of time? And, and how, how do you deal with communication? I mean, one of the things I hear us talking about so much is communication, how to elicit the, the ideas, the importance, the needs, the preferences, the, the desires of the individual at a, at a given point in time, and to encompass 
the family member as part of that interdisciplinary team, you know, to not speak, in, frankly, only of the, the medical or the healthcare professionals or the direct care workers who are involved in the home care, but making sure that family members are a substantial part of that team. And that there, you know, we know at this point in time that, you know, we could start training 100 geriatricians a day and there would never be enough geriatricians ultimately to, to support uh, the aging of our population at this point in time. So uh, one of the biggest ideas that is out there now is, is that how do you take professionals from the whole range of the interdisciplinary care team, physicians, nurses, uh, various kinds of rehabilitative therapists, social workers, direct care workers, you know, the list goes on and on. And how do you give folks a geriatric framework? How do you help them think about what are the various biological, psychological, social, cultural, and environmental factors that are affecting an older person uh, in their care and help them reorient their framework in that way? You know, oftentimes our, our healthcare system right now will focus very much on a, a, a particular body part or a particular condition and not necessarily think about the whole person who's being presented. And with older adults, that's so important to consider what the, the whole person is, is bringing to the table so that it's not just about the congestive heart failure and the diabetes, but it really is, are they able to get inside of their home uh, without any difficulty? Uh, are they able to have access to the nutrition that they not only need, but that, the, that they desire? Uh, and are they able, are they having, are, is social relations with the family positive? Or, you know, there are occasions, I know this is hard to believe, where it's not that positive <laughs> to have engagement and that people make families of their choice. And so making, you know, ensuring that people do have access and are not socially isolated uh, in ways that, that are, that's destructive for their, their mental health. And so thinking about all of those parts and that training a workforce from, you know, the physician, you know, the, the folks who are, I would say, kind of highest on the medical food chain, um, all the way down to people who are, uh, you know, volunteers through community service programs to understand the breadth and depth of needs of older adults and, and all the different providers in between and, and helping family caregivers understand about that too. So, you know, potentially all of us in, in, that are here today uh, are, could be caregivers to a family member, to a neighbor, to a loved one as they age. And so how do we take into account those perspectives in, in approaching people? And, and oftentimes communication really is the key. Gary, picking up on um, Gretchen's theme of a house isn't always a home, um, and your um, theme earlier as well of, of how do we monitor the quality in the, these widespread settings. Um, talk a little bit about elder abuse and, and the things that can be done at the state level and the local level to try to um, address the topic of elder abuse. Well, elder abuse is um, one of the really ugly, unspoken problems in our society, um, from my perspective. You know, um, a generation ago now, child abuse came out of the closet, and we have created all sorts of systems and networks of support and access to try to prevent it and then try to help children. Domestic violence and spousal abuse was a little bit behind that, but it too is now recognized as a problem that we need to be honest about and deal with and open about. Elder abuse is the last secret. It's the last thing in the closet for many families. Elder abu there, there's a whole range of elder abuse, all the way from forcing them on that salt-free 1,800-calorie-a-day <laughs> diet. You know, there are days when I think that's abuse. 
uh, when my daughter nags at me to watch my blood sugar. But uh, to be serious about it, we're living in a, in a terrible economic situation right now. And at the family level, that's giving rise to a lot of abuse because people are being manipulated to surrender resources, to give assets to children. Sometimes it's subtle, oftentimes it's not very subtle. And we're discovering that a lot of that emotional abuse towards a parent that may own free and clear a home and grandchildren who are unemployed and desperate and the tension that's going on in that family, there's real emotional abuse involved. And we see cases where that emotional abuse can literally lead to physical abuse if it's not resolved in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way. Elder abuse is rampant right now in the state of California. And we have this horrible situation in which we have decimated the resources to track and prosecute cases of elder abuse because the state has chosen to slash its funding of adult protective services, which are typically administered at the local level. Our organization has undertaken an elder abuse awareness project uh, in a couple of counties in this state, particularly focused on some minority communities. Um, in the Latino community, there's a great reluctance to go to public officials because there may be family issues, there may be immigration issues, there are all sorts of issues. I mean, why would a grandmother want to turn in her grandson, for God's name? And yet, maybe that's what's needed, and it's tough. Uh, we're working in the Bay Area with some Chinese-American organizations because they have, even though they are not new to this country, they have traditionally been very isolated from the mainstream of society, and they aren't connected to a lot of the resources that are available. Um, it, it's something we don't want to talk about, but just like we're far more comfortable today talking about child abuse and how it just shouldn't be tolerated and that there needs to be intervention and that there need to be resources uh, available to help people get through it and to deal with it, uh, the same is true of elder abuse. On a couple of occasions, you've mentioned the decrease uh, funding that's available in the California budget. Um, and you've worked in budget offices before. How do we, given the range of services that Gretchen has described and that Bonnie's talked about as well, how do we fund those services? How do we ensure that quality monitoring is in place, given the budget restraints that we're facing it's as a state? The, it, it is a huge issue that's facing this state and we are, as a state and as voters who elect our public officials, I will tell you we are not having an honest conversation about what's going on with our public services in this state. And I would even say, especially with regard to services for the elderly. There are days when I feel like we have an administration and a state, instead of state policymakers that have declared war on the seniors of this state, we have seen programs that people like Bonnie have spent an entire career working to put in place, gone in a flash, gone with the stroke of a pen, and in some cases not necessarily. Programs that where we could have been creative in shifting to federally funded sources to main progr maintain programs and we've decided not to do it as a state so we aren't putting ourselves at risk in the future. Uh, you opened this conversation with, I think, the thing that's probably the biggest elephant in the room, and that is that people in this state are getting older. We are going to have 
The fastest growing cohort in our state is people over the age of 85. Not in numbers, but in the rate of their increase. Do you know that, uh, that, that, that school-age children, K through 12, will grow this decade or the next 15 years by 17%? People over the age of 65 will grow 75%. Those numbers are huge. As you said, they represent millions of people. And what we're doing today is to dismantle the service infrastructure that folks like Bonnie Darwin have put in place over decades. We are closing down programs. We are eliminating case management so that people have choices and can get knowledge about what services are available. We have a Medi-Cal program that provides health care benefits to all low-income people. We just eliminated all of the eyeglasses, dental, hearing aids, psychology services to the seniors in the state, not to anybody else. We just chose as a state to eliminate tax credits for low-income seniors who rent or who own their own homes to help them pay their property taxes so that they can remain in their communities and have the choices of community-based care that Gretchen has described. The governor vetoed all of the money. It affects tens of thousands, many, many thousands of seniors and turned around four months later and proposed special tax cuts to a handful of corporations, most of whom uh, have workers out of the state of California. So we're pursuing a set of policies, and I'm going to look all of you in the eye and say, by the people that you elected, don't say it's somebody else's fault, we have elected these folks, and they are not taking care of the seniors in California today, and they are preparing what could be a nightmare for the seniors over the next 20 to 50 years in this state if we don't turn it around. We're destroying the program infrastructure. You talked about training people in gerontology. If there are no jobs for them to fill because we've eliminated the public funded programs, we're going to lose a whole generation of people who are care potential caregivers or professionals. Uh, it, it makes as much sense to me as saying, let's take I-5 and close it down to one or two lanes because we can't afford to fix it or have the highway patrol out there. Let's just barricade it. We'll get by. People would be outraged if we did it, but that's what we're doing to the senior services in this state right now. And I, I lose sleep over it. You, I think you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, we just have a few minutes left before we go to questions, so I did want to loop back to Bonnie for a second and, and ask a little bit about sort of the California Culture Change Coalition and the kind of work that you're trying to do, which is more budget neutral um, within nursing homes. And thinking about how we can, one of the things that improves quality in nursing homes is the ability to have a pattern recognition so that staff can see um, a patient and know them well and be able to pick up over time changes in that individual. And one of the challenges that we faced is a um, very high rate of staffing turnover or attrition um, in nursing homes. And so I just wanted to ask Bonnie a little bit about the California Culture Change Coalition and thoughts about um, how we can improve the um, professional and sense of, of um, 
belonging within um, the frontline workers in nursing homes? Thanks for asking, because it's something that I'm really excited about. I, I started my uh, career as an activities director in a nursing home and then became a nursing home administrator and, and left, really, because and got more excited about home and community-based services and preserving an, an individual autonomy. And um, for, for m many of you who have been, a, you've just gone into a nursing home, um, even the, the very, very best nursing homes uh, can be um, kind of depressing places. And um, there's, a, there's a national movement that has started, and it, this is, it's very exciting. Um, um, it, it, it was really started, and one of the founders actually is a, is a man by the name of Barry Barkin here in California. The, one of the other founders that's more well-known is Dr. Bill Thomas with the Eden Alternative. Mm. But there is a national movement now to change how nursing homes operate, and many of us are saying that founding nursing homes on a medical model with, you know, like their junior hospitals is the wrong model. And many of the things that we see that we think are wrong with nursing homes have to do with this regimented routine with being on the 1800 calorie diet with, you know, with all of the sort of you will do it this way because this is efficient and it fits in with the routine of the nursing home. So, um, so there's this new movement. It has nothing to do with cultural diversity. It's called culture change because what we really want to do is change that old institutional mindset, you know, most epitomized by sort of that old nurse ratchet kind of, you know, this is how it's going to be. But, but to change that and so that what we say is that you, you bring heart back into your work. And one of the things that's really exciting is that the direct care workers who, after all, are tasked with the most difficult of, of chores um, every single day, day in and day out. And many of them do it for, because they have a, a special feeling for older people. And when this um, idea comes to the nursing homes, it's, we call it culture change, we also call it person-centered care. When that idea comes to nursing homes, the ones who are most quickly embrace it are the direct care workers because they're so excited about it. And one of the cardinal ways, if you are in the position of having to choose a nursing home anytime soon, one of the questions to ask, besides using your nose and your eyes, you know, to sort of look and see and, and, and take in a nursing home, but is to ask the, the question, do your nursing assistants rotate assignments or are they consistently assigned? And so it's just, it's because in, I would say, in almost 99% of nursing homes in the, in the country, nursing homes routinely um, rotated their um, direct caregivers. And now one of the movements is starting that no, nursing homes stay, the caregivers stay with, that, with the people that they take care of. So they have six to eight, you know, depending on how um, much there is to manage or what the needs are. And they, and they see those people day in and day out. They know, they know that Mrs. Jones doesn't want to get up until 9.30 in the morning because that's just the way she's done it all her life. And when she gets up, she really would like a cup of coffee. And no, she actually does not want to eat all that food that's on the, on the table. And that Mr. Smith, who's down the way, really, um, he will be up at 5.30. And by, when he gets up at 5.30, he's hungry and he'd like to go down for a snack. So it's, I, I know that that sounds 
um, it may sound trivial, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, if any of one of us were forced into um, being on somebody else's routine, we would just want to rebel. And so much of the depression and the loneliness comes from that lack of, of a direct connection with the person, with the people that you're taking care of, and it's being forced. I mean, who wants to be forced to do anything? So that's a movement that's taking hold in the country. And what, one of the things, as we say, is when you pay attention to the intangibles, the tangibles, which is the quality of care indicators, start to improve. So you actually see things like uh, reduced number of falls, less use of um, sleep medication and psychotropic medication, um, people gain weight. All those kinds of things. I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on and on, no, but it's very exciting. I think, you know, I started the discussion today talking about the broad array of services and as well as the size and sort of the, the scope of, the, of what we're facing. So as you've seen here with the discussion, there's a lot we could talk about, but it's time for some questions and answers. So. I'm Paula Gelber-Dromi. Uh, I just have one quick question. Uh, I have actually many, but one. Could you tell us, please, in Southern California, what... Uh, Nursing homes are using the Eden alternative. <laughs> I actually don't. Um, we are, even though we have a statewide coalition, um, we have not made many inroads in Los Angeles. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to be spending some time. Uh, it, I, I so I can't answer that question. I and I don't know why that is. But I'm going to be spending some time meeting with some of the key leaders down here to see if I can't find out those answers. And you can find facilities that identify themselves as Eden Alternatives by going to the Eden Alternative website. Um, the challenge, of course, is the difference between having birds and trees and plants in the lobby and having staff that are connecting with the patients and where the quality of life is being individualized at a patient level. So in whatever um, marketing approach the facility is taking, think always about that level uh, when you go in. It's not just the, the, the wallpaper and the, the, the lighting and, and the things that we all sort of look at when we think about a place we want to live. But it's also that human connection um, that's taking place and, and, and how to sort of try to think about that. Hi, Albert Young, Pasadena. Thank you for the entire panel for sharing today. I have a question about long-term care insurance. Um, is that something that you would recommend for people who are able to do it? What happens when some folks um, are rejected for normal long-term care insurance? But if you, might, you know, would you recommend that they pay above and beyond in order to get it? And actually, would you recommend it for folks uh, of a younger generation to plan for the future? I, go, I guess I get that question. Everyone's yeah. like, sure, certainly. Uh, Long-term care insurance is, again, it's, it's not a monolith product. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of variations, a lot of, lot of elements and components to long-term care insurance. So it's certainly something that would, it's very important to investigate thoroughly and to understand all of the elements to it, the inflation riders, uh, whether you can receive care in your home, which most of the products have moved towards that direction. Uh, the kind of original products were about paying for nursing home care. So, uh, you know, frankly, the long-term care insurance industry has not grown very substantially over the last 10 to 15 years, um, as, as the, I think the industry had kind of hoped for and suspected. So, 
uh, you know, it's important to really understand the product that's underneath of, of what is being uh, sold. There, there, you can purchase it in the individual market. Oftentimes, employers have access to long-term care insurance. So uh, kind of my general advice is to really understand and know the product and, and to know what the costs over are over on the long term. Um, that, is, that is one mechanism, certainly, to, that individuals can take uh, to, to support and to think about financing care over the long haul. Uh, generally, the, the kind of the thinking about purchasing long-term care insurance is uh, in either kind of your late 40s or early 50s is generally the, the information that I have about when people, when is kind of the right time to start thinking about that. Uh, there are certainly lots of ideas, though, at this juncture because of, about thinking about other ways to finance long-term care uh, because of the underwriting issue that you're speaking of. Certainly not everyone is eligible to purchase long-term care insurance uh, because of uh, pre-existing conditions, frankly, uh, that the, the way that the market is set up at this point in time. So um, there are certainly some ideas in Congress right now um, that are discussing alternatives to providing uh, more of a, 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 a voluntary uh, public pool that is uh, that was Senator Ted Kennedy's the class act or the class plan which is in both the House and the Senate bill those are some ideas right now of thinking of alternative ways to provide a much larger uh, insurance pool or a different kind of insurance pool frankly uh, to pay for care so uh, I, you know, the, there's a lot of complexity to that issue, and certainly it's not available to everyone, which I think is, is kind of an issue at this particular juncture. Are there other things that you want to add? I, I guess I would just say that today, many long-term sh care insurance companies are in a very difficult place because the nature of the lifespan has, has increased and the cost of health care have increased significantly. And policies that were written a decade or more ago were based on some assumptions that are probably no longer the case. It's one thing to write a long-term care policy <clears throat> and cover somebody who's expected to live to be 78. But if that person ends up living to be 92, the insurance company, if they've written too many policies like that, is in deep you-know-what. And... There are a lot of them right now that are really struggling because so much of the, of the world has changed from policies, say, that were written and, and initiated back in the 80s even. So I think this is an area where we're going to see a lot of change. I think it's going to follow a lot of the health reform decisions that we're about to make as a country. Uh, and so for somebody as young as you, it might be too soon to act. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I need... Uh, turn these... Oh, okay. I was going to say, turn off, turn off these lights and tell me what you're drinking because, whoa. Hi, my name is Leslie Robin. My question is regarding the term you used of interdisciplinary team. Help me understand more what that means when you say that and how you really put one together. How do you get the partners to talk and to come on the same page when you have an issue? That is a fabulous question, and uh, it, in some ways it's a, it's a theoretical construct of, of what many of us would like and, and hope to have. There are certainly 
some healthcare systems, some, some groups of providers who do that better or differently than others, certainly. And what I would say is the most important elements of an interdisciplinary team are those that are really focused on what are the particular needs of the individual. So um, oftentimes, uh, either the head or the entry point into an interdisciplinary care team would likely be a physician who would identify what their, the particular health and functional needs of an older adult at that point in time, um, and then someone who could engage the social care side of the, the ledger, the supportive side of the ledger, such as a social worker, and I will full acknowledgement I am a social worker, so I do think about things in those terms, um, and certainly nurses play a very active role in that process too. But then it really, so that is often thought as, as possibly the core of an interdisciplinary team, but then it really branches out into what are the other providers who can be really um, active and supportive depending on what the older person's needs are. So. Uh, clearly, uh, the other core element of the, the team needs to be whoever the, the family caregivers are, the families of choice that that individual has identified uh, to be clearly supportive in helping implement and carry forth whatever the, often the plan of care may be as that team uh, comes together. So it could include, uh, say, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, certainly home care workers or other direct care service providers who would be engaged in that. But I would say above and beyond all things and regardless of what an individual's functional level is, that older person needs to be at the center or the key person of that interdisciplinary team because it just doesn't work if I'm going to make decisions for my dad and that I'm going to tell him what to do. Uh, my dad is, was a, a assistant fire chief for LA County. I'm never going to tell that man what to do. <laughs> and so I, mean, I, I always think about that as my paradigm of making sure that the older person is the key member of that team. And then you have a couple of other key professional members and then it really is building out who are the other supportive elements in that. And it can also be uh, you know, providers in the community. Maybe it's the home delivered meals person is the key member of that interdisciplinary team because because she comes by every day or every other day to provide the meals. And is someone who is that, that constant person, uh, I can't remember what the word is that you consistent. chose, consistent, no. that consistent person in their life who is engaging. Maybe it's the neighbor. Uh, but ultimately, it is putting together multiple pieces, depending on what an individual's needs are. And again, there are some health and social supportive systems that are better at doing that than others. Uh, certainly, the world in which we envision at the SCAN Foundation is to have care provided that includes both the medical and the supportive care side integrated in a way that there's a whole array of individuals who are part of that team that can make it self-sustaining regardless of what an individual's needs are. The other key member of that team is the pharmacist. Yes. Um, a you. lot of um, patients are on multiple medications, many of which interact with each other um, and have um, adverse side effects that need to be carefully monitored for. So another, um, for almost every elder yes. that we take care of, the pharmacist should be um, integrated as part of that um, team. How do you get even the, your doctors to want to even talk to each other and to talk to that team and make it work in that way once you know that's who should be talking to each other? At this juncture, it, it often comes down to the family being the advocate and, and making sure that, that all doctors have a list of all medications that all providers are prescribing and to very clearly say, so Dr. Jones, did you call Dr. Smith? And are you aware of what Dr. Smith is doing? And we went and saw Dr. Smith on this day, and I would like you to talk with that person. I'd like your 
front nursing staff to call this doctor's front nursing staff and to engage that dialogue. Um, oftentimes it does come at the onus of the individuals and families. That's not the way that, in my view of the world, that the system should occur, uh, but in the fragmented system, in the way in which most older adults have Medicare right now, which is through what was, it's called a fee-for-service system, so that there isn't a lot of incentives to coordinate care, uh, it, so much of that burden ends up on individuals and their families to, to push providers to, to make those connections. Um, there, are some, there are some groups, though, who have, that still operate in those kinds of ways that do have a point person who are willing to make those calls, but oftentimes that is in the onus of families. The Veterans Administration was actually um, the um, location of really the genesis of geriatric movement within the United States. Um, and in the Veterans Administration, one of the programs that's been in place for a long time are geriatric evaluation and management units. And on those units, the team meets face-to-face. Um, and it's been found to be a very effective, the earlier in the hospital state that that team comes together, the better the outcomes. And it's been found to be a very effective way of bringing together that team. But what we're dealing with are the realities of sort of the financing and the other demands and, and um, outside of the VA. Um, how is it, and so part of the work in the field now is to think about virtual teams. How do we communicate with email or other ways of communicating? Within nursing homes, some nursing homes have face-to-face -face team meetings to discuss um, residents. Others try to do it through other communication devices. Unfortunately, uh, typically the physician is missing from those care planning meetings um, in a lot of nursing homes that have a more open staff model where private physicians are coming in and out of the facility. So um, unfortunately, that's a big challenge with the interdisciplinary team in a lot of nursing homes. And I think it sort of depends on... on where where the person in your life is that you're trying, but if you can choose choose a system that uh, that you know um, already. Um, Scan, for instance, is is a, a system that you know there's going to be care coordination. Um, Kaiser also there's going to be care coordination. Those those kind there are systems we had a very um, heated, heated um, discussion about this just earlier because. Um, I'm someone who happens to think that for the, for the majority of people, just because uh, it, when managed care is done right, and by that I mean care coordination, we certainly are going to get a, a better delivery of services. Um, the the fee-for-service system, that you, you just... The best you can do is what Gretchen was saying, is, is try to, as an advocate, ask people to... Um, ask physicians and pharmacists, et cetera, to talk to each other. But it, if you pick a system that already functions that way, th that's, the, that's the best you can do. Hi there. Uh, my name is Ella Pennington. Thank you so much for this panel discussion. It's been very, very rich. Uh, the question I have is, on a system side, is there a state that's providing a model of how to handle this complex, fragmented series of services, or mm -hmm. perhaps there another nation that is providing a model of, of how to help elders during this time in their lives? We're really, I think, um, not there yet, that, there's, that there is a perfect model. There are states that, that do things, 
Um, California, you know, is it's, its own nation state. Um, we are the center of the universe, at least those of us who live in California tend to think that. And so <laughs> I guess I, pardon my Sacramento cynicisms, but we often, as, as policymakers, don't look to, to really to see what other states are doing, which is unfortunate. But even other states, there are really no states that statewide have adopted anything. Um, you know, even, but Texas in the Houston area has a really interesting, exciting program. The state of Arizona has done something. They put nurse practitioners into every single nursing home in order to coordinate care and get nursing, get residents discharged as quickly to uh, another community setting. So there are some other states that are doing some interesting things. Um, there's no state who solved the problem yet. Right. I, 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 let me add to that. Bonnie just hit it on the head in her last comment. There are states and there are nations that do pieces of what we've talked about here much better than we do in California. But I, don't, I couldn't name one that does it all right or all well. Uh, I, I think maybe the place to look might be some of the northern European countries uh, that generally have a much richer uh, array of public goods and, uh, and, and, and seem to be doing much better with lifelong health care services and, that's, and that kind of blends in or, or, or carries over into long-term care services. But I don't know of a model I mean, that's I've out heard there. actually within the United States our approach to trying these demonstration and pilot projects described as planting a thousand flowers and seeing which ones bloom. Um, and the challenge for replicating those is that we don't know what field they went in, what fertilizer was used, what seed was planted, and the frequency of the watering. And so it becomes very difficult, even with a successful program, to figure out how to replicate it um, in other areas and regions. So you've hit on a very important um, and challenging issue that hopefully we'll see more effort to try to coordinate those the other types thing of things. Is that our thinking has really evolved over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. It evolved a lot from when I, when I started out. When, when long-term care truly meant nursing homes, that was the only choice. And we, people are getting more and more comfortable with letting people that, nor, that would have 30 years ago been in a nursing home, you know, people are getting more and more comfortable with people staying in the community. My 95-year-old father has been wheelchair-bound for three years, and he manages his own life and um, with a, no attendant or caregiver or anyone else. Uh, and that wouldn't have happened 30 years ago, but more and more we're saying... And I do think we need to give ourselves a little bit of credit on that vein. We certainly have a long, long way to go, but when you kind of look historically back over the last 40, 50 years, and even 30 mm -hmm. years, um, we've, we really have come a long way. And I think that ultimately we have you know, a whole bastion of people who are moving into to senior stages at this juncture in time, or will be rather shortly, who will not accept even our notions of what we have today, let alone what they were 30 years ago, which is really kind of a, a burgeoning populace of folks who have radically different ideas on how they want to age. And thank goodness for that, because it's a voice that needs to be heard. Hi, my name is Eric Lozano. I'm actually with AARP California. So thank you very much for being here tonight. This is a, an issue obviously near and dear to our hearts. 
Um, and you've covered a lot of topics tonight, from caregiving to quality of care to, um, to uh, universal design mm -hmm. to budget cuts, which AARP fought very hard at the state level and will continue to be doing that. And I think for a lot of people, it's really overwhelming. It's not just the issue. It's not just one um, component. It, it, mm -hmm. it is interdisciplinary from <clears throat> healthcare to uh, it crosses over everything. So um, one of the things I want to ask you before I do a little plug for us is some of the resources that you would offer to people in terms of online and organizations that they can look to to get more answers and more information. I would just plug our own website, aarp.org, where you can search for caregiving or long-term care and get information not just on policy, but also community support and, and, um, and information that you need to know. Do you still have the long-term care um, references on your website? Absolutely, yes, we do. So that's actually a very good source and answer to your question as well to look at for some of the long-term care answer, policy issues. Uh, part of it, somewhat narrowly, if your concern is a nursing facility for a loved one, there are several good websites. My advice would be to go to all of them, not just pick one. There is the one from the California Healthcare Foundation. There's an organization that's called the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. It's a state-based organization that has a, a rich supply of information based on that work that is done by public regulators and overseers. And I would look at what they have to say. And then the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, called CMS, has put out a new rating of nursing homes. I have a little bit of trouble with it because it tries to take a lot of data that can be very complicated and synthesize it. And the best way to understand it is what happens when you go to a restaurant and you see an ABC or whatever. You know, that can cover a lot of sins. Uh, and the same is true of the five-star rating for nursing homes at the CMS website. So but the that's CMS, another source. Let me just, um, the CMS website is Nursing Home Compare. Yeah. Um, it's the CMS website. Yeah. And the California Healthcare Foundation website is calqualitycare.org. Mm -hmm. And if you look for an organization called Canner, C-A-N-H-R, uh, if you Google it, you'll find their website. And they've got a very good website on, this is all about nursing homes. In terms of what gets paid for and doesn't get paid for, let's not forget HICAP, the HICAP That's program. Right. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't even actually I don't know what HICAP stands for. Health, health insurance, <laughs> health, health information, information counseling and assistance, assistance program. program. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But they, they they really will walk you through what Medicare pays for, what Medi-Cal pays for, and what some of your insurance options are. Uh, they I think um, they really were focused. Um, initially on the Medigap insurance, mm -hmm. so private insurance, um, supplementary insurance. So, but they're, but they're, they're a great resource. If I can add just one to that mix that, um, and certainly in addition to the foundation website, but one I would put forth is the Family Caregiver Alliance, mm -hmm. yes. which is an organization up in San Francisco that not only, and I, I'm speaking to that, uh, much of which in, in terms of the audience that is here who may or may not be family caregivers at some point in time, um, really speaks to those who are thinking about care for themselves and care for a loved one and speaks it from that perspective as well as provides information about the variety of resources that we've talked about tonight. A, so. re a report released today, 30% of Americans self-identify as caregivers. Thank you. My name is Gary Bachersky, and I, I want to ask a political question. Great. Okay. 
Um, this state is one of the highest taxing states in the country. It has among the highest property taxes. It has among the highest sales tax, gasoline tax, and personal income tax. Yet they're cutting your programs. Where is all the money going? Well, first I want to challenge your original statement. If you take state and local taxes combined and look at them compared to the income, average income levels or the range of incomes in this state, we are about 26th or 27th among the 50 states. We consider ourselves a high-tax state because we make a lot of money in this state. Granted, if I were to average together what Bill Gates and I made last year, I'd look a lot better. So statistics can be deceiving. But the fact is, we aren't, uh, if, if you want to look at New Jersey, if you want to look at Connecticut, if you want to look at some other states, uh, and there are a bunch more, they, uh, the, the people in those states are paying a much greater share of their income and wealth in taxes to support public services. That being said, the fastest growing program funded out of the General Revenue Fund in the state of California is our prison system. And it is our prison system, and it is exploding because the voters passed initiatives that mandated judges, require judges to give mandated minimum sentences that many states don't have. And so we are now spending more on prisons than we do on colleges and universities in California. And I think that's a really bizarre reflection of our priorities as a people. And we spend more per day to keep a prisoner in prison than we do on our nursing homes. Right. And that's, that's, right. that's one of my axes to grind. Yeah. We ought to spend at least as much. And, 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 and the state of California also has a really broad array of environmental programs that don't exist in most other states. We are way ahead of the curve as a state and a population. And I'm not going to necessarily, you know, I don't, I don't criticize that. I'm just saying if you, th those are two big areas where we spend a lot more than our, our fellow citizens in other states. Um, but we also are one of the highest cost states in the country. And so, you know, you can, you can compare, for instance, what we spend on a per diem basis for nursing homes. You've got to remember some of those nursing homes are in San Francisco and Santa Monica where you're paying huge amounts just to be there that you don't pay in Lincoln, Nebraska or Jefferson City, Missouri, where I lived for a while. And that adds a lot. You know, a nursing home is nursing and home. And so it's a facility and it costs a lot of money to build it, maintain it, lease it, whatever you do. So a lot of our uh, just plain old cost structure of our public services are higher because of the high cost state in which we live. Uh, thank you. My name is Ted Humphrey from Los Angeles. I want to thank you for the, the great questions you've helped to stimulate. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, you, you touched on it, but the, the cost issue. I mean, when we talk about financing college education, there's huge variables, but we have 20 years. We kind of go through a, a, a table. Is it going to be public, private, elite, mm -hmm. undergrad, graduate? And we work towards it. What are the orders of magnitude that, that families should be 
expecting and expected to pay. And I know that the underwriters are running away from this issue, but just to give us some kind of bigger than a bread box uh, kind of answer would help. Oh, I'm, I'm not equipped to answer that question. That is such a it is such a tough, tough question because you you really can't you almost it's very difficult to plan for for long term care. And so your your question sort of presupposes that you're not going to purchase insurance and that you're going to pay for it out of pocket. And you know I. I I don't even I, I don't even hear anyone bandy about a, a certain dollar amount. In you part know. because the spectrum of services yeah. that you may need vary a lot. Very, One so of the much. things that we have really to our relief um, seen is that as the population has aged, we were very concerned that we were going to see longer and longer periods of needing long-term care and, and as people live longer. What we've seen is that you've stayed basically in that, that need state for about the same amount of time as you always have. You just put it off until a later age. So that's one thing that's a little bit reassuring in terms of thinking about the cost. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the cost, um, and the highest cost period is the last six months of life. Right. Um, and a lot of that is actually borne by Medicare because a lot of that time spent actually in the hospital um, getting acute care services. Um, a nursing home, private pay, you're looking anywhere from forty dollars to $60,000 a year um, in private mm -hmm. pay. There's mm -hmm. some that are a little bit less, some that are even more, but that's about the range that you're looking at for private pay in a nursing home for a year. And it was more typical even 10 years ago that someone might spend two years in a nursing home. That's very, that's not typical anymore. Right. Um, more average is six to eight weeks um, and in even shorter stays than that. So some people do stay, you know, two and three years. It, it, it's, you know, you, you have um, different scenarios. But it's unusual these days that anyone would spend three years in a nursing home. Well, and there's also points in time where people engage that rehabilitative service right. at multiple points in time and then return home. So it, understanding, deciding, purchasing, and thinking about the purchase options within the long-term care framework, you know, it's not buying a refrigerator, frankly. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's what's so difficult about it. And I think that's why the actuaries have had their own challenge you know, it, I mean, there's always that fundamental question of is long-term care an insurable event? And because how do you know? How do you know all the parameters on that? And so I think the, the greatest element that we can put forth is the idea of appreciating that there will likely be points in time where, where we will have different functional levels that will likely require some levels of assistance and being flexible along those lines and keeping the communication channels as open as we possibly can with the people who are in our life so that we can put together a package and array of services that fits our individual needs. And, and that, it, that's challenging and knowing that there will likely be resource use in that. But other than that, it, it's really anybody's guess. But the likelihood is it, it's probably there. You know, the, what's the, the percentage of, of the, that most people will spend at least a, a minimal point of time in a nursing home, even if that's just for a short rehabilitative stay, it's upwards to about 45%, yeah. I believe. The best plan so. of all is to get married and stay married. That yeah. actually decreases <laughs> yeah, right. your risk of needing long-term <laughs> care um, over time. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and, as a, and as a single individual, let me say there, it's hard to know, we lost our questioner, but it's hard to know on an individual by individual basis. I think that was what you heard here. There are things happening in our demographics that tell us
some things about us as a collectivity, as, as a group. First of all, most of you can plan on living well into your 80s. That's different than it was for 20 years ago even, 25 years ago. Most of you will live into your 80s. I think we've got an economic structure in this country where the bad side of that is that many of you should plan on working into your mid-70s. Because I'm sorry. Well, you're... I, no offense, but you look like you can make it. Okay. <laughs> okay, but... Okay, on but, that note, we are okay, the only I'll thing stop. standing between folks and refreshments oh, and the restroom. <laughs> so I think we need to... We'll be out yeah. there to answer questions if people have more questions. Just, just.